Well, I want to wish you all a happy Easter. It's really good to see so many of you out today, some of you for the first time, some of you working your way back from the pandemic, and, and we're just glad you're here. And this morning, I want us to remember that in the bigger picture, this is the week that Christians remember and celebrate key events in the life of Jesus. We call this whole week Passion Week, Passion for Suffering. And interestingly, when you read your Bible, those of you who are just learning how to read the Bible, if you read the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would actually be stricken by the fact that these are not biographies of Jesus. They're extended introductions to the Passion Week. In fact, most of the Gospels spend almost a third of the whole book on this last week, which began last week on Palm Sunday. So the Passion Week of Jesus, he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and they're like, Hosanna, the Messiah's here. And he goes, no, I'm not setting up my kingdom now. But then on Monday, he comes in, and he, he casts out the money changers and cleanses the temple. On Tuesday, they say to him, look how beautiful this temple is. He goes, ah, that temple's going to be torn down. And they say, tell us about the signs of your coming. Wednesday, he continues to teach in the temple, but Thursday comes around, and there's millions of Jews who have come to Jerusalem because it's Passover, and it's time to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And so Jesus goes into the upper room with his disciples to have the Passover feast. He washes their feet. They leave and go to the garden where he was going to camp out with them, and that night he's arrested. And being arrested that night, he's kept awake all night long and bounced around like a pinball to six different trials with Pilate and Herod and the Sadducees. It was terrible, up all night. And then he's crucified at 9 a.m. on Good Friday morning. And as they nail him and they prop him up on the cross with the two thieves, he hangs there for six hours that Friday and at midnight or at noon, it gets dark. And Jesus had given seven sayings and the last one being, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, and then he dies. When that happened, his disciples lost it. I mean, think about it. For the last three and a half years, they had quit their jobs and done nothing but follow Jesus. And they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was going to set up this great kingdom, and they were going to have positions of power, and that they were going to see this glorious overthrow the Romans and the Messiah was going to reign over the world and they were going to be his best men. But instead he's dead. So they're, they're, they're hopeless. Their dreams are shattered. They're disillusioned. Major disappointment. They're dumbfounded. They're delirious and they know they're in danger. They probably were thinking something like this. What just happened? We're done. The Romans are going to kill us now. And all that we've poured our lives into is a big waste. And it would be fair to say that that's a pretty natural reaction. You could hardly blame them, right? And yet, what makes this so surprising is that when you read the gospel stories, on no less than three separate occasions, Jesus said to them, now listen, when we get to Jerusalem, 
They're going to punch me in the face. They're going to mock me. They're going to beat me. And then they're going to nail me to a cross. And I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. Three separate times he told them that. That would be like having a conversation with your friend. And, and um, your friend's like, oh, you know, what do you think of the weather? What are you going to do for Easter? You watch the Final Four and you go, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, doctor told me I'm going to die tomorrow. And they go, oh, that's fine. Are you guys having a ham? How could Jesus tell them three times that he was going to die and rise again? And then they're shocked when he dies. In fact, in Luke 9, um, you know how we go, listen, Jesus said this in Luke 9, 44. Let these words sink into your ears. I am going to be delivered over to these men. And, and, he, and he told them how he'd be crucified. But ready for this? It says, they didn't understand this statement. But, but, but listen to this. It says, it was concealed from them. What the heck does that mean? It was concealed from them. They didn't understand it. They couldn't perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him. Now, are any of those words big? I am going to die. Only one of them has two syllables. And yet it says, it was concealed from them. Then, without them knowing it, on Sunday morning, Jesus comes to life in a physical body. The stones rolled away and he comes walking out. And all of a sudden he begins to appear to them, sometimes one by one, sometimes in small groups. In fact, the Bible actually says that for the next 40 days he appeared to them many times. We have no idea how many times. With many convincing proofs. I mean, he wanted to go out of his way to go, guys, listen, in case you're not sure, I'm alive. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. You're not having a, 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 a dream from too much pizza. Give me something to eat. And he took a fish fillet. He's like, bum, bum, bum. they're like, okay. In fact, the New Testament records 10 encounters of Jesus. Who knows how many others? He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the other women. He appeared to Peter. He walked with two guys on a road to another town. He appeared to the 10 disciples in the upper room. And then the following week when, when, when Thomas is there to the 11 disciples. Then later on they're fishing and he's on the beach going, hey, what's going on out there? Then finally it says, when he went up to Galilee, he appeared to 500 followers at one time. If this room was packed, with 500 people. They all saw him at once. Then he appeared to his brother James. That would have been interesting. You don't believe your brother's a Messiah. He tells you, I'm the son of God. I'm going to die, rise again. You go to his funeral, and you come home, and he's sitting on the couch, and he goes, hey, James. And then finally, he appears to the 11 in Acts chapter 1, and he says, all right, I'm going up. So this morning, I just want us to take a look at one of those stories. You know, I was looking back, I've been preaching Easter messages here for the last 15 years, and I was going back over the different ones, and you could, you could look at so many different angles, but this morning I want you to take your Bible, we're going to just spend a few moments looking at Luke chapter 24. This is one of those 10 accounts recorded for us in Scripture, and each of them has something relevant, and I feel like this is what the Lord put in my heart to share today, Luke chapter 24. And this is, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is the story of what's called the two on the road to Emmaus. So Langhorne is about seven miles from here. I live in Langhorne. I live right by Cairn University. So it would be something like this. Hey, you want to take a walk? Yeah, where do you want to go? Let's walk to Langhorne. Okay, that's 
Some of you get your steps in, you're like, oh, I did that every day. But for a lot of people, you'd be like, that's a long walk. So we read, and, and join with me in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, it says, Behold, two of them were going that day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So there's two, two followers of Jesus, it's Sunday afternoon, and they were conversing with each other about all the things which had taken place. So they weren't just going, who's going to win the final four? Gee, I don't know, did you get your vaccine? They're sitting there going, I'm crushed. Like, this is insane. They killed him. Like, they were, they were probably weeping, right? And Jesus, I have to think that Jesus was funny. Like, he wasn't a slapstick comedian. Hey, did I tell you the one about the guy in the... No, but I think Jesus had a sense of humor. So, so look what he does. It says, Jesus approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So don't miss that. I don't think what Jesus did was put on a Groucho Marx pair of plastic glasses with a little, little mustache. Hey, thank you very much. How you doing? Like, I don't know how, but God prevented them from recognizing him. Now, don't miss this. This is how God rolls. He can reveal and he can conceal. And if you or I ever think that we're so smart, we got this figured out, you better change your attitude. I better change my attitude because the Bible says he hides things from the proud and he reveals things to the humble. So whatever your view of Jesus is, if it isn't what the Bible says, I would ask God to reveal that to you. So, for whatever reason, Jesus concealed his identity. So, he says to them, hey, uh, what are you guys, verse 17, what are you guys talking about as you're walking? And, and, and they stop. Like, imagine you're walking to Tyler Park. Hey, mind if I join you? Hey, what are you guys talking about? And they stop. And he's like, did I say something? And it says they were looking sad, like, like mules with a long face. And then they look at Jesus like, dude, what planet are you from? Do you live under a rock? Are you an ostrich? Is your head in the sand? What do you mean, what are we talking about? The same thing everybody's talking about. And Jesus is like, oh, my internet's down. What are you talking about? So look, look at what they said. They said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? You know, people were there for the Passover. Are you unaware of what happened? And, and Jesus says to them, what? What happened? What things? What, what are you talking about? He's not lying, right? It's like when God said, Adam, did you eat from the tree? That's not a lie, but he knew. So he's bringing it out of them. So, so they said to him, what things? The things about Jesus the Nazarene. You never heard of Jesus the Nazarene? Everybody knows about Jesus the Nazarene. The dude's famous. He raises the dead. We've seen him feed 5,000 people. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him do amazing things. You never heard of him? And, 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 and you know what? He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. This dude had power. And I wonder what Jesus is thinking. That's all, they, that's all they got? I remember once Peter said I was the Messiah. Seems like they're regressing. He was a great prophet. Jesus is like, okay, okay. Tell me more. And they said, but the chief priests and rulers sent him to death and they crucified him. Wait, what? They killed him? Yeah, and in fact, we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. <coughs> all of our hopes were cruelly crushed. We thought for sure that when he got to Jerusalem, he would set up his kingdom. 
And now he's dead, we're running scared, and our life is over. And by the way, it's the third day. Like, this didn't just happen this, this morning. It happened Friday. And if that's not enough, dude, check this out. Our friends, right? Verse 22, some women amazed us because they went to his tomb this morning and they couldn't find his body. And they came saying that, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of them were with us and they went to the tomb and they found it just exactly as the women had said. But they didn't see him. So you ever, people start talking and you're like, at some point I thought this was a, a dialogue, but it feels like a monologue because they just were unloading. And they finally stopped. And, and I like, <laughs> Jesus is funny. So look what he says. They get done talking. Verse 25. And he says to them, Oh, foolish men. Now, wait a minute. Did he just say that? Oh, you fools. You're like, wow. Like, if you're from the Northeast, you understand that that's kind of normal. You know, when we moved back up from Texas, we forgot. It's rough up here. What are you, stupid? You talking to me? Yo, right? So Jesus just called them knuckleheads, right? He goes, you're foolish. And they're like, what? What? Why are we foolish? Well, look what he says. He says, you're so slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? This morning, as we begin this passage, I want to answer three things. I want to look at three things. Number one, the necessity of the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus goes, wasn't it necessary? Like, what do you mean it was necessary? And then number two, we're going to talk about the centrality of the death and resurrection of Christ. And then finally, the practicality. Like, that was 2,000 years ago. What's that have to do with me? But I find that phrase to be quite interesting. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things? What did Jesus mean by it was necessary for me to die? Because in its strictest sense, it wasn't. You're like, what are you talking about? Do you remember if you've read the Bible when Satan and the demons sinned against God and they fell in rebellion? The Bible says God did not spare angels when they sinned. It wasn't necessary for God to say, oh, the poor devil, let me, let me, let me pay for his sins. So what would make us think that it was necessary for him to redeem us? It wasn't. It would have been entirely fair to say, listen, you blew it, all of you. You've sinned, you've disconnected from me. You were created to serve me and obey me and you all failed. You too, preacher Tom. So in that respect, it was not necessary at all for Jesus to die. But what made it necessary was God loves us. And it was God's design to call a people out of this broken world and save them. And once God had determined before the world began that he would rescue some of this fallen humanity, then it was necessary for Christ to die. Why was it necessary? How do you know? Why couldn't he just make up a, a special person to die for us? Well, I'll give you an, an answer to that. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, nobody loved each other like Jesus and God, and they've been at it for a long time, eternity. 
And Jesus is down there in agony, sweating drops of blood. And he says, Father, if it's possible, would you take this cup away? In other words, Dad, please, is there any other way? Now, what kind of a dad who loves his kid would go, Jesus, there's a million ways, but we already settled this. You're down there now. We planned it this way. Forget it. We're not backing out now. Just finish the job. You got to be kidding me. If there was any other way than the torturous, barbaric death of Jesus on the cross, God would have done it. So Jesus says, it was necessary for Christ to suffer. And here's what's so incredibly important about that. It's to go, all right, if it was necessary for Christ to suffer, why? So that some sinners could be forgiven. Now, what do you think about this? I ask people this question all the time. Why do you think God will let you into heaven? And 99.9% .9 of the time they go, well, because I'm a good person. I want you to just kind of back up and think about that. The Bible says God sent his son into the world to die for sinners because it was necessary. In Galatians chapter 2, it says, if you could get to heaven by being good, then Christ died for no reason. Do you know what you're saying to God when you say, I'm a good person and I think I'll get in because I'm being good? You are saying to God, or I'm saying to God, that was stupid. What a waste for you to kill your son. I got this. So if in any way anybody thinks that somehow you're good enough to get to heaven, what an insult to God. If getting right with God and going to heaven comes through my goodness, the Bible says Christ died for no reason. I wouldn't want to be before God with you and say, you don't need him, you got me. So if that's true, it was necessary for Christ to die so that I could be forgiven. Then whether you're a religious sinner who's going, I hope I'm good enough, throw that in the dump and just go, thank you, Jesus, I trust in you. Or if you're an irreligious sinner who goes, I don't care about God, you better get out of the dump and turn to God and say, thank you, God, that Jesus died for all of my sins. Not most of them, all of them. He didn't say, I got this, I did my part, now you do yours. He said, it's finished. So whoever is telling you, well, it's almost finished, but you got purgatory and penance. No, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. It was necessary. It was full and sufficient and complete, and it has provided for us an opportunity to get right with God. But at that point, Jesus says, hey, by the way, do you guys ever read your Bibles? Look at the next verse. He says, wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. It amazes me how many people in America, especially if you grew up in certain religions, oh yeah, I already read the Bible. Talk about being inoculated to the wrong illness. I was in... Right aid one time, this girl says to me, you teach at that Bible school? I said, yeah, you ever read the Bible? She goes, oh yeah, that's a strict book. I said, really? I said, well, that's your view of the Bible? You ever read this strict book? I said, what do you remember? What's your favorite story? She goes, um, 
I can't remember. I said, tell me one thing you read. I can't remember. I said, this thing has a couple thousand pages. And you tell me you read the whole thing and you can't remember one thing? If I was you, I'd go back for a redo, right? And for some of you, I beg you to do, to, if, you, if you think you know the Bible, but you're like, I don't know. Listen, there's a very central message in the Bible. Nothing comes close. Everything else is just an understory. The main story of the Bible is Jesus, who died, rose, and is coming again. The Old Testament predicted it. The Gospels show its fulfillment. And the book of Revelation and the book of Acts shows his program until it ends. It's all about Jesus. And so Jesus is like, get your notebooks out, boys. I'm going to school you here, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Wouldn't that have been cool? He probably said, hey, listen, look here in Genesis 3. Remember when the devil tempted Eve and she sinned? Remember what I said to the devil? From the seed of a woman's going to come one to crush your head. That's me. Remember Abraham in, in, in Genesis 22 when, 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 when he goes, the Lord will provide, and, and they find a ram who's going to be the substitute sacrifice? That's me. Remember when Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like me? That's me. Do you remember when God said to David, one of your descendants will be the king, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one forever, and he will reign forever? That's me. Do you remember in Isaiah when he, when he predicted that the Messiah would suffer, that he would be despised and rejected by men? We would hide our faces from him, and the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all, and he was beaten and he bore our stripes that's me. Do you remember when David did some common sense logic and said, if my son, the Messiah, is going to reign forever, then when he dies, he must raise from the dead. Psalm 16 says, you won't allow your Messiah to stay in Hades. That's me. At some point, they're gone. I guess what he's saying here is the story of the Bible is about Jesus, his death and resurrection and return. And you're going, you're getting warm. In fact, in John chapter 5, the disciples and Jesus are talking to the Pharisees and they go, we're from Moses. And Jesus goes, you're not, from, you're not from Moses. And Abraham's not your father, you'd love me. But they're like, we know we're going to heaven. And Jesus goes, if I was you, I'd get your Bible out. He says, you better search the scriptures because you think you're going to heaven. But he says, this book talks about me. So the central message of the Bible is that Jesus not about religion, it's about Jesus, the lamb who was slain. The cursed fallen humanity has an opportunity to be redeemed. And the Bible is full of predictions and illusions and prophecies and fulfillment and explanations of the death and resurrection of Christ. And it's kind of cool because, look at verse 30, when, when Jesus gets done giving them a lesson and they're like, whoa, never thought about that. Which, by the way, I do the same thing when I talk to people, especially Jewish people. I always ask them, if you're a Jewish person, praise the Lord. I always say to Jewish people, how do you know Jesus isn't the Messiah? My dentist says, I just know he isn't. I said, well, how do you know he isn't? In fact, how are you going to know who he is? He goes, that's a good question. I said, it's the scriptures. What does the Bible say? What was predicted about the Messiah? Before you go, it can't be Jesus. Know what it says. The central message is it's pointing to Jesus, his death and resurrection. And so as Jesus gets done, 
Back then in Middle Eastern culture, you showed hospitality to strangers. So it says, as it was getting evening, Jesus pretended he would go further. And they say, hey, why don't you stay with us, Mac? And Jesus goes, all right. You got a room? So, so they're having dinner, and Jesus breaks bread in front of them. Now, I don't know exactly what happened. It says, but their eyes were opened, and he vanished from their sight. Now, can you imagine that? As soon as he breaks the bread, they're like, wait, that's Jesus. They're like, it's Jesus. Where's Jesus? Right? So they're so moved by this that they go running back to tell their friends what happened. And they look at each other, and they say, man, my heart was, I, I had Holy Ghost heartburn. I was so excited. My heart was burning when he was explaining the scriptures. It's true. It's real. It's central. So they go running back, and eventually Jesus meets up with them. And the final point I want to make here is the practicality of Easter. What's the point? Look at verse 44. Jesus says to them, hey, these words which I spoke to you in Moses and the prophets, that he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. Little, little side thought here. If you're seeking to find God, just say to God, Lord, open my mind. If this is the truth, let me just know that. Give me the key. Unlock my, my skull. So he opens their mind and he says, look, it was written that Christ should suffer and rise from the dead and repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. The first practical application of, of, of Easter in this particular passage is this, a promise of forgiveness. He goes, look, it was promised that I would die and rise again. So now I want you to go out and promise forgiveness. And not only that, he also taught them to promise the Holy Spirit. Go around and tell people, I promise you that if you come to Jesus, you will be fully and freely forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everybody? No, not everybody. Jesus said, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You have to respond. So here's the practicality. There are too many people in America who think they're going to heaven simply because they intellectually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, right? I don't believe in Santa, but I do believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's not repentance. In fact, John Piper said it so well. He said, the problem is, today, it's not that there are laws outside of me forbidding the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, most people aren't going, oh, maybe that's true. Yeah, it's, if it's true for you, it's true for me. But I love what he says here. He goes, the problem is there's a personal in law inside of us that says, I don't have to adapt my life to anything that I don't find helpful. So truth for me is what I find acceptable and helpful. In other words, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Fine, I'm good with that. But I don't have to adapt my life to it. And yet, when the apostles went around preaching, this is what Peter said in Acts. He said, God has overlooked your ignorance. Now you better repent because he's fixed a day that he's going to judge the world by Jesus. And he gave us assurance by raising him from the dead. This is radical. Jesus is gone. I'll offer you forgiveness, but you must be willing. You must believe that I died for you and be willing to follow me. Not just raise your hand and put a notch in your belt and say, I got my hell insurance. But repentance, 
for the forgiveness of sins. Come as you are and say, Jesus, please accept me. I don't want to just be one of those people like the devil who believes in their head. I want to become a follower who believes in my heart. And Jesus offers this wonderful, full and free forgiveness. And if you've responded to Jesus, then you're forgiven. And you have the Holy Spirit. And Jesus doesn't dismiss jury members. This is what he said. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, I won't cast out. So you might be thinking, I'm, I'm not good enough, or my repentance isn't sincere enough, or, uh, listen, Jesus does not qualify whoever comes to me. And maybe you came to him a long time ago and you think he kicked you back out. You just come, and you believe, and you, and you, and you surrender your will. You say, Jesus, I made a mess in my life, but thank you. So there's a promise of forgiveness, but not only is there a promise of forgiveness, the second practical implication is, look at verse 48. Jesus says, and by the way, I want you to stay here in the city until you're clothed with power. So there's a promise of forgiveness, but there's also power to live and witness. See, if I'm going to be a Christian, it's radical. My whole life changes. I go around and tell others about Jesus. I do my best to turn from my sin and trust and follow him. Good luck trying that on your own. Christianity is not self-reformation. It's Holy Ghost transformation. If you just allow Jesus to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior, you'll get power to change. He will tweak your heart. He will put a new hard drive in there. All of a sudden, the things that you used to love doing that were wrong, you'll want to start doing things that are right. You won't even know what's happened. Because God begins to work in us to will and work for his good pleasure. You say, but I've had these habits. I can't stop them. And you'll say, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And suddenly I change. I can't love that person, but now I have power. I can't break this, but now I have power. I have the power of God outside myself. I could never tell someone about Jesus. And Jesus says, but you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses. And you'll start praying. A friend of mine, he, I hope he's watching today. The other day, he had a terrible migraine. He said, man, I get these, they're terrible. I said, let me pray for you. Lord, in the name of Jesus, pray you'll heal him. Texted me last night, he said, it went away as soon as you left. Nothing like that's ever happened. I said, yeah, Jesus is awesome. Jesus did it. I said, why don't you join us for Easter? I hope you're there. We have power if we just give our lives to Christ. But there's a third thing, and I'll close with this. Yes, I have the promise of forgiveness. I have power to witness and live. But third, I have hope in the midst of chaos. Like, does anybody agree? This place is out of control. Planet Earth, United States of America, it's out of control, right? We've got a pandemic, political pandemonium. We got all kinds of divisiveness. Everyone's pushing pan-gender, right? Everyone's in a panic, financial, physical. Many people are in pain from either being depressed because you can't be around people or from being depressed because you're going to die or someone you love is going to die. I mean, we are living in chaos. And yet these same guys are like this. Oh, man, man, look what it says. It says they returned, the end of the chapter, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, praising God. What? 
Who has great joy and praises God in the midst of chaos? Christians. How? How can they praise God in the midst of this chaos? Well, number one, because they don't need to fear death anymore. Right? Because Jesus lives. I don't want to get the COVID. By the way, I already got it. I don't want to get it again. And I don't want to die from it. And I don't want you to die from it. And even if you're not afraid of you dying personally, then we have the fear that someone we love will die. And someone we love or you love may have died. But if you're a Christian, that's just a temporary separation. And we have this wonderful hope of being reunited. And so in the midst of this chaos, I'm like, all right, I don't need to be afraid to die. And if God didn't spare his own son so that I could go to heaven and be forgiven, surely in this life, he will take care of me. In the midst of this chaos, Jesus said, my peace, I live with you. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. And so I look to my risen Lord and I say, Jesus, I'm struggling, I'm hurting. I'm mad, sad, had. I don't know what's going on. And Jesus says, my peace I give to you. And so I can rejoice. But I want to close with a thought that I was reading an article by N.T. Wright, and I was like, yeah, you know what? He's right. Most of the time, people say this about, about Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday proves there's life after death. And he goes, no. Easter Sunday proves there's life after life after death. Yeah, that's what I thought. What? There's life after life after death. What does that mean? You're shooting your arrow too short. The hope of a Christian is not, ooh, I can't wait to die and go up to heaven and be with Jesus. Woo, play my heart. That's just temporary. The people who are up in heaven playing their harps are just there for a little rest. Now get it, it's better. It's an upgrade by far. But the resurrection, see, see to, to depart and be with Christ, that's life after death. But the resurrection, that's life after life after death. So get out of your mind this idea that, you know, I, I can't wait to go up and be with Jesus in heaven. Set it further down the road. I can't wait till this sorry corpse of mine comes out of the ground and I am glorified with a physical body. And no longer is Jesus up in heaven. We're down on earth. So in the midst of the chaos, remember this. God's creating a new cosmos. The word cosmos means world. Figured I'd throw a good big word in there for you, right? Revelation, I'll close with this. Revelation 21, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. See, that's resurrection. A new heaven and a new earth. And I, I heard a loud, a loud voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. See, he's coming down. We're coming up out of the ground. And we will be his people forever in this beautiful new heaven and earth. And you're like, yeah, well, it's probably going to be filled with panic, pandemonium, and chaos again. And God goes, not this time. It says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any death. That's a nice blessing. When I'm raised and I have life after life after death, no more dying. Oh, by the way, also, there's no more mourning. Some of you are here this, and you're mourning and grieving and depressed and sad. And, and, and Yeah. No more crying. No more pain. The first things have passed away. 
And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Easter is about life after life after death. When Jesus comes back and we raise from the dead and we're with him forever in this glorious new world. That's what I believe. Is that what you believe? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the death of Jesus for us sinners. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. Help us to respond right now. For some of you, I want to invite you to respond to this resurrection message by repenting. The first step for forgiveness is to repent. Change your mind and turn to God the best you know how. Maybe you're a religious sinner and you just need to go, God, forgive me. I tried to think it was about me, my good works, but it's about you and the cross. Just ask Jesus. Come to him right there in your seat and say, Jesus, please forgive me. I believe that you died. Maybe you're an irreligious sinner. You just come on Easter and Christmas and God's not on your radar the best of the year. Repent then and come to Jesus just as you are and just say, Lord, I want to start following you by faith. I believe that you died to forgive me. Please forgive me. Help me to follow you. Make that choice today to follow Jesus. And the first step of that is Come forward and confess that, that you are a follower and you want to get baptized and, and be part of Christ's followers. And then if you're a Christian, man, we get beat up in this world. But rejoice, you're forgiven. And in the midst of this chaos, may Jesus give you peace. And take your eyes off the pain in front of you and look down the road a ways and see that our present agony doesn't compare to future ecstasy. The sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory to follow. Thank you, Jesus, for the resurrection life. May you come again and set up your kingdom. And may we as Christians work for you and come back to you, those who have strayed, come back to you Come back to church. Come back to Bible reading and prayer and fellowship. Jesus is full of mercy. Lord, may you bless us, your children, for you are risen indeed. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you and have a wonderful day.